Um, I first got involved in this interesting and um, ever-expanding project, uh, the representation of the new woman, before it was quite as international as it is today. That is to say, um, I think it was Vanessa who dragged me in, <laughs> who made it impossible for me to refuse, um, to be the moderator at a very interesting panel discussion at the International Center for Photography uh, related to a show uh, called The New Woman, which was mainly, I think, Weimar Germany-based, but included... Uh, Amelia Earhart, just for extras, but very central. Uh, that show really opened my eyes even further to the possibilities of the representation and analysis of the position of an entity known as the new woman. And that included many contradictory elements. Uh, now, I'm even more pleased that the new woman has become international and uh, pan-geographic. I'm sure that's not a word, but pan-geographic, including women from other areas of the globe uh, and um, extending a bit, too, I think, in the uh, chronological order. It is partly in honor of this extraordinarily interesting and vividly written new book by a multiplicity of authors called The New Woman International, Representations in Photography and Film from the 1870s through the 1960s. The newer New Woman is also included in this. Um, edited by Elizabeth Otto and Vanessa Rocco, uh, that this panel is taking place, and you can avail yourself of copies of this book at a bargain price, I am told, <laughs> in the rear after the symposium. It is well worth reading. Uh, right before I came, I curled up with my two cats, one bipolar, the other obese, um, <laughs> and read a few thrilling chapters. So it really is a terrific book. Um, as far as the introducing the subject, uh, I am just going to partially read from the foreword to the book, Representing the New Woman, Complexity and Contradiction, um, and it's hard, I think, to define as an introduction to our panel discussion today. It is hard to define what we mean by the new woman, just as it is easy to find examples of her ubiquitous pre uh, image, not only in Western Europe, but throughout the world, in the era extending from the fin de siècle to the 1930s and even uh, to the decades beyond. Is the new woman quintessentially defined by the photography and film of Weimar Germany in such figures as Louise Brooks' Lulu in G.W. Papp's film Pandora's Box of 1929? That is to say, is she seductive 
self-aggrandizing and sexually ambiguous? Or is she more truly embodied in the courageous activism and professional expertise of the American aviator or aviatrix, uh, Amelia Earhart? Is the new woman envisioned as vamp or seductress, merely an updated avatar uh, of, t- of the time-honored female topos, a streamlined version of Delilah, Salome, or more recently Becky Sharp or Matahari? Or, on the other hand, is she a stalwart fighter for equal rights, the suffrage, and meaningful work for women, a battler for female independence and self-determination? Certainly, these two visions are not identical, and indeed, they are contradictory. Although there are many um, images, like Tamara Delempica's self-portrait in a green Bugatti of 1925, showing the elegant artist at the wheel of her high-powered car, that attempt to weld the sexy with the self-propelling. Yet what all new images of the new women have in common, flapper or vamp, political revolutionary or suffragette, is a heartfelt rejection of woman's traditional role as it was defined by every society in the world. Rebellion against oppressive notions of the womanly understood to be a life devoted to subordinating one's own needs and desires to those of men, family, and children. Certainly, it's hard to see the filmic Lulu as an embodiment of female agency in the best sense of the word. Yet at the time, and even today, she provided a powerful visual and psychological model for young women trying to find their way in what might be called, to borrow from Bertolt Brecht, the jungle of the city. Women on their own, seeking a viable identity in an alluring but dangerous modern setting. This publication and the panel, um, as I said, grew out of an exhibition, Louise Brooks and the New Woman in Weimar Cinema, and an accompanying symposium, which took place at the International Center of Photography in New York in 2007. One of the key contributions of the New Woman uh, International is the way in which it broadens the scope of this gendered paradigm. Too often, the discussion of this powerful new woman has been limited to either the flapper of Weimar or the hearty suffragist in the turn of the century United States and Great Britain. With little or no crossover in these discussions and rare applications of them to regions beyond our home turf. In fact, not only did this image, as we're going to see, cross-pollinate across the Atlantic in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, but it spread throughout all of Europe, including Eastern Europe and into Asia and Africa, aided and abetted by globally proliferating mass media outlets, primarily those that are photographic. The image of Louise Brooks and other fashionable figures were popular in Japanese, Mexican, Euro-American, and other nationally-based magazines around the globe. And Asian countries formulated their own responses to this alluring construct so popular with female consumers 
through such uh, cultural um, uh, ambassadors as Butterfly Wu, a stylish leading actress who traveled to film festivals in Moscow and Berlin in 1935, causing a reevaluation of stereotypes of Chinese women. Moreover, as the new woman international brings clearly into focus, distinctly non-Western forms of new womanhood were developed in and contributed to this global phenomenon. In general, the new woman, wherever she might be, was a beacon to the adventurous and a threat to the upholders of traditional values. To female youth, the new woman offered a paradigm of liberation and agency, liberation from corsets, long hair, and bulky skirts, bodily freedom through participation in sports and dance, and equally important, liberation in the even more uncumbering realm of ideology. It was liberation from the ideal of true womanhood, from the bondage of marriage and self-sacrifice, the denial of achievement through career and work outside the home, and above all, sexual subordination and submission. It was even liberation from the notion that sexuality and gender were unambiguous givens. Uh, I think now, without further ado, I hope, having whetted your appetite uh, for this subject, I'm going to turn over uh, the evening to our speakers, and I'm going to introduce them one by one, starting with our first speaker, Elizabeth Otto, who is uh, an art historian focusing on issues of gender, visuality, and media culture in the later 19th and 20th centuries, especially in Germany and France. In addition to co-editing The New Woman International, uh, Professor Otto is the author of Tempo Tempo, the Bauhaus photo montages of Marianne Brandt uh, in 2005. She has been a fellow of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, the American Association of University Women, the German Academic Exchange Service, and the Humanities Center at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Otto received her PhD from the University of Michigan and is assistant professor in the Department of Visual Studies at the University of Buffalo, the State University of New York. Her talk is titled, Imagining and Embodying New Womanhood. So um, thank you to Janet Jacobson and the Center for Research on Women at Barnard. Um, also to Lucy Trainer and Pamela Phillips, who really helped set all of this uh, up for us, too, and um, thanks to all of you for coming. You um, can probably imagine that doing a book, even if you're doing it in a team, can be a long project, and uh, it's been wonderful to work with our contributors, but it's also really great to um, get to interact and present the work to you. So we welcome your questions and comments. Um, and what I'll be doing today is, or doing right now, is introducing the book, talking from the introduction that Vanessa and I co-wrote. So even though I'm speaking, this is our collaborative, collaborative work. 
Also, as I, um, there are 16 essays in the book, and as I go through, sometimes in the lower portions of the slide in bracket, you'll see a name and a title in quotes. That's one of the essays in the book. So I'm drawing from some of the images from our introduction, but also from images throughout the book, so you get a little bit of a sense of it. So most fundamentally, this project adds to, um, here, let me put that up, adds to the exploration of the new woman in three different ways. First, we argue that new womanhood was defined and debated, debated most heatedly in the new visual technologies of film and photography. Second, we situate new womanhood as a phenomenon not just of the 1920s when it's famously uh, associated with the flapper, but as originating at least as early as in the visual culture of the 1870s, as in this scathing stereo, stereo view critique of a woman neglecting her duties in favor of practicing a speech on women's rights. And you can see her poor husband on the left there doing the washing. Oh, no. <laughs> the third thing uh, that I would say this project does is... Um, assert that while new womanhood always has had powerful local manifestations, it was a fundamentally international phenomenon and thus one of the first uh, global gender icons. The dazzling and urbane new woman came to epitomize modern femininity. She existed in numerous incarnations, including Corrine stars, female athletes and adventurers, Garçon, modern girls, Neue Frauen, suffragettes, Trampke, that's a kind of female hiker uh, who was a new woman, um, and even, we loved this one, flapperistas. Um, that's in Mexico. Thus, new womanhood existed as both a set of abstract ideas and as a compilation of individual behaviors and experiences. These varied as they were translated across, across national contexts and through a range of key historical moments, including first wave feminism, colonialism, the first and second world wars, political revolutions, and the rise of modernism. This is in the book, but it's also nice local content for you all. Consistent in all of her manifestations is the new woman's radical challenge to the status quo. And Linda, I think, talked about this nicely, but we'll be elaborating on this here. New women challenged the, with daring fashion statements, but they also embodied feminism in action. They entered men's educational institutions and professions, became catered to consumers of goods, services, and media, and they lived and loved in ways that defined convention. The new woman was famous, famously associated with the quest for female suffrage and political representation, but often as uh, rather than asking for new rights, new women claimed them or else were willing to take to the streets in order to achieve these rights. New women set the trends for women worldwide, but they also often stood accused of dangerously subverting gender norms and encouraging lesbianism, mannishness, or criminal deviance. Indeed, the new woman seemed to be such a universally recognizable icon of change that she could instantly inspire and simultaneously incite strong reactions of anger. 
As I suggested at the outset, we found that it was through visual images that the new woman's presence was most overtly apparent. From the 1870s through the 1960s, which is the span of our book, artists, photographers, models, magazine editors, filmmakers, and actresses, among others, sought to define and contest the terms of modern femininity. And they created a pictorial archive of new womanhood that we felt in doing this project remained to be substantively interpreted. Over the past three decades, scholars from many disciplines have scrutinized the new woman, but with only a few significant exceptions, they have generally focused on specific contexts, often neglecting her transcendence of national and cultural borders. So this book, we think, inaugurates a new chapter on the scholarship in this field. In some ways, there are some other books that we cite that we think were really helpful to us, too. The book confronts and examines the visual representation of this jubilant figure who could not be contained by national boundaries. The volume brings together scholars whose work analyzes the new woman from her inception to her full development in the interwar period and even into the 1960s. Contributors address the ways that controversial female ideas ideals figured in a range of discourses, including those on gender norms, but also race, technology, sexuality, the sciences, commercial culture, and colonialism, to name a few. In exploring these topics, members of this project have sought to investigate the terms of gendered representation as a process in which women were as much agents as allegories. And these essays reveal the ways in which a feminine ideal circled the globe to be translated into numerous visual languages. The new woman was a creature of modernity and of modern technology, as, say, here, uh, in an example of photo photojournalism, the Pittsburgh Courier was actually something that circulated national, nationally and was one of the main publications of the Har- Harlem Renaissance. It was in tandem with such visual technologies as, of mass representation as lithography, um, so, of course, a non-photographic media, um, offset printing, photographs, stereographs, and the cinema that new womanhood went global in her many uh, incarnations. <laughs> we love this one. This is, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll tell you that this is Mrs. Mitchell. Um, and Mrs. Mitchell was the first documented, at least, undersea, female undersea diver. And on the left, you can see her smiling right before she goes down. And on the right, she's come up and her bun is kind of fallen over. And she looks, we think, like she's being drawn and quartered as she's being helped out of her outfit. But this is from Despina Stratagakos' essay on female firsts. This was a major kind of media phenomenon to show the first art female architect or indeed undersea diver. So during the 90-year span examined by contributors to the New Woman International, visual representation provided some of the most fertile ground for defining and expressing new womanhood. Other kinds of pictures, which were obviously the product of an artist's hand, painting above all, but also lithography and posters, which has been really substantively uh, investigated by a lot of people. All of these helped to define the new woman. But we assert that this trailblazing figure was most at home in quintessentially modern, mechanically-based forms of imagery. By concentrating on photography and film, this book identifies an essential link between gender, technology, and spectacle, and it explores the camera-made images that allowed for an increased 
circula circulation of representations of modern femininity. Film and photography are famously perceived to be indexical media in that viewers see these images as direct traces of the real world. And this aspect gave these media a powerful cultural relevance for viewers. In addition to mirroring an endless array of these of images of these women, the camera could function as an instrument of self-determination, as Uta Eskildsen has observed. We were thus interested in photography's perceived indexical power in relation to images not just of new women, but made by them, or how women's authorial positions behind the camera, as well as in front of it, could reveal them as agents in constructing the new woman as a creative avatar of change. As in here, Germaine Krull's self-portrait from 1925, she represents herself both as author and producer. She is overtly modern and in control of the camera, but she also shows herself as hybrid and technologized. Photography and film were media at the border between modernism and mass culture, and this border space was also inhabited by the new woman, who was on the leading edge of art, fashion, and culture, but also had the, the market-driven appeal of the starlet, model or salesgirl. By contrast to histories of modernism that have, even now, often placed male viewers and creators at the center of culture, a focus on new womanhood allows for another story to emerge, one that situates the development of gendered modernisms parallel to the emergence of new visual technologies, democracy, urban culture, and in complex relationships with colonialism and imperialism. Part of what we and our authors discovered through this work is that there are images that might not initially look like typical new women, but in their context functioned as such through their politicized and often radical critique of the status quo. The time-based medium of silent cinema animated images of modern femininity and created a new form of star with its attendant, often photo-based print culture, so that these two kinds of film-based media often worked hand in hand. In the case of the Spanish Civil War, for example, as Kathleen Vernon's essay shows, women's fashions and images of fashionable women were mobilized by both the left and the right in political debates, debates which she shows were closed down by the victory of the Franco re regime. Mass-produced representations also allowed for a critique of modern femininity through cartoons, photographs, or films that could make new womanhood appear somehow wrong, mannish, cheap, or superficial. Or it could even, as in Fritz Lang's uh, evil robot, New Woman, shown here, uh, show this new form of femininity as a deceitful kind of lie that empowered women at the peril of other citizens. For those of you who don't know the film, the, the same actress plays the robot Maria on the right, but she's actually an evil robot, and uh, almost everyone is killed in the society of Metropolis because of her. In my own essay for this volume, I explore how new women artists were often international figures themselves, as in the case of, um, oh wait, sorry. I had one more thing to say before I talk about my work. Uh, while distinctly different from mass-produced representations, images that were seen by smaller audiences, such as one-off photo montages or hand-printed photographs, something with a more unique touch, these also played an important role, for it was in these that responses to the new woman and representations of her expanded potential were often made, Some, sometimes, as in the case of Hannah Hoesch, by new women themselves. 
So in my own work for this volume, I explored how new women artists also were often international figures themselves. So part of what we're looking at is not just here's, here are new women in different places, but how these figures were crossing borders. So, and I look at that, this through the case of the German Bauhaus artist Marianne Brandt. She's best known for her work in metal at the Bauhaus. Uh, in fact, she, uh, a small, very small tea extract pot that she made is, um, has gone for the highest price at auction for a Bauhaus object. So uh, she took a break from the Bauhaus in 1926 and became very active in the medium of photomontage. And it was this city of visual spectacle that, as you can see in this montage, Brandt engaged with the mass cultural representations of women. So um, here you can see, I hope you can see it, uh, there are numerous kind of dancers and starlets, including at the lower um, right a, uh, an image of Josephine Baker, who had been in uh, Paris for about a year at this point. She was 22, and she was a huge star. And uh, in the middle, you can see a um, pair of gorgeous legs that are kind of pink and purple, um, and they're being stroked by a man who doesn't seem to notice that either the torso is missing or it's this Egyptian head, kind of truncated or somewhat grotesque figure. And, um, and also, actually, if you look at it, his bottom half is missing too, or he's kind of flowing into this dancing girl. Um, but right next to this scene of female spectacle, if you can see it on the right, there are tiny figures of... Uh, women waiting to get onto a double-decker bus in the background. And each of these tiny little legs, which is smaller than a match uh, stick, has been cut out by Brandt. So it's very carefully done. And it, if you look closely at these montages and peruse them, you can see then legs as female spectacle uh, contrasted directly with legs getting on the bus and going around Paris, which you can also read this as a montage about that, about women going around and looking. And similarly, in the lower right corner, which is where uh, artists often sign their work, Brandt didn't sign, but instead she put an image of a woman driving a luxurious motor car. And in the original image uh, that she took from a newspaper, in the back, there were two guys uh, in tuxedos, and she's chopped off their heads. So it's an, an overt statement of female kind of women at the wheel and behind things. Um, so that's just briefly what I was interested in in this. As strong as the case for the new woman as having is for having her having merged emerged, excuse me, most clearly through photography and film, we also trace the earlier appearance of new women in other forms of imagery and in text, at least as early as the revolutionary declarations of women's rights in the late 18th century, say by Olympe de Gouges and Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, the term new woman itself first circulated in print, starting in 1894. Above all, we explore how the representations caught on film, including mass media images, art photography, self-portraiture, but also police mugshots or photomontage and products of the global film industry. We looked at how all of these served as spaces for contemplation of the fraught links between femininity and modernity and how these images functioned as tools for women's participation in popular and avant-garde visual production. The New Woman International probes the deep and nuanced interrelationship between imagery, technology, and internationalism in the representation of this figure who confronted, challenged, and forever changed the norms of gender. Thank you very much.
And I just wanted to point out that your first image, the photograph of, uh, of the, the uh, poor man condemned to do the laundry while his, his wife practices a speech, has quite a long history, actually, not in photography. But we can look at, at Dickens, for example, in his novel, where Mrs. Jellyby plays this role. She, um, uh, she does good for the poor, work outside the home while her children are in rags and falling into pots of hot water. Or Daumier in his scathing satire of... Um, uh, blue stockings has a very similar image of a, a poor husband condemned to you know, iron his own clothes heaven forbid while his wife says uh, goodbye my dear I'm off to see my editor or something like that <laughs> which uh, I think I, so this is a, a tapos that you pick wonderfully because it has such a long history and to this very day I'm sure is uh, is being circulated somewhere. Okay, thank you so much for your talk. Our next speaker, Claire Rogan, is curator of the Davidson Center at Wesleyan University. She received her doctorate in the history of art and architecture from Brown University. And in her dissertation, she examined the construction of the lesbian in German art and visual culture, from 1900 to 1933. Her publications include articles on early lithography and the German lesbian magazines of the 1920s. She has curated numerous exhibitions, including Philip Traeger, a retrospective in 2006, and Keiji Shinohara, Color Harmony in 2007. At Wesleyan, she teaches courses on the history of photography, the history of prints, and museum studies. And her talk is entitled, Acting the Lesbian, Je m'encruise les amis. About 1924, Je m'encruise, a young female photographer, decided to create two portfolios of double female nudes, titled Acte, Nudes, or, and the second one's titled Les Amis, Girlfriends. While Acta presented the women in flirtatious poses, Les Amis reveals overtly sexual lesbian scenes. Produced in Berlin, a center for experimental sexual politics and advocacy for homosexual rights in the interwar years, these photographs reveal one private response to the possibilities of the city. Seizing a role previously allowed only to men, Cruel photographed explicit sexual material yet posed her models in ways that curiously frustrate the expectations of the male gaze and of the genre of erotic or pornographic material. The compositions and costumes suggest playful enactments or temporary diversions rather than statements of identity. Yet once circulated and viewed by others, they risked charges of pornography. Indeed, reproductions of three photographs were ultimately included in the extensive study, De Erotic in der Photographie, The Erotic in Photography, uh, published in 1931-32, which is the most fabulous German three-volume scholarship on erotic photography, um, where they were reinserted into the dominant discourses on erotic images. Throughout her life, Krull avidly sees the new professional and personal opportunities available to women, as Kim Sitchell has detailed. 
I would like to add here that in many ways this paper is an extension of Sitchell's analysis in her excellent study, Germaine Krull, Photographer of Modernity. In Munich, Krull studied photography and established a studio, but was expelled following the failure of the Socialist Revolution in 1918. She attended the Third World Congress of the Communist International in Moscow and was jailed twice as an anti-revolutionary before being expelled by the Soviets. So, you know, goes back and forth. She then moves to Berlin, where she started a photography studio with Kurt Hubschman. The existing copies of Akta and Les Amis are not dated, but they were most likely done in 1924. In her later autobiography, Krull recalled, quote, In that period, I wanted to make something new. I thought of taking some blatant photographs, perhaps gallant. Gretel Hubschman, the wife of her studio partner, Kurt Hubschman, found it a good idea. So he took a series of photographs of semi-nude figures, end quote. Seeking to make something new, Krull turned to gallant photographs, a euphemism that recalled 18th century French erotic literature and art, and by this period was often used to refer to erotica. What did it mean to create gallant photographs in 1924? With the founding of the Weimar Republic in 1919, censorship had ended, but the earlier laws on obscenity remained. The new constitution stated, quote, censorship does not take place, end quote. Yet the paragraph continued, permitting laws regulating film and the protection of youth from Schund and Schmutz literature, uh, best defined as violent and erotic literature. Uh, Schund is, uh, well, Schund is violent and Schmutz is dirt. Moreover, the legal code from 1872 remained in effect and criminalized the sale and distribution of obscene material, including visual material. Nevertheless, gallant photographs were widely available. In 1921, two police reports described the Berlin Police Reference Collection, which included about 7,000 examples of photographs depicting, quote, sexual activities in all imaginable modes, end quote. This did include homoerotic material. The report estimated that at least several hundred thousand pornographic photographs were in circulation. One version of the portfolio actor, now in a private collection in Munich, contains photographs. And here we, we can go to the photos. To my knowledge, this is the only existing full set. The individual prints are not numbered, and there's no evidence to suggest a sequence. With bobbed hairstyles and simple white slips, the two young models could represent any new woman. Posed in cruel studio, seated on a divan draped in a Paisley shawl, or standing against a simple white wall, uh, they pose in various casual positions, naked, undressing, or in this one, partly draped by a slip or shawl. This is much more evocative of uh, dance photography in these two poses. Despite their partial undress, only one plate suggests an embrace, and even this does not clearly imply a sexual act. Kim Sitchell argues that such images, quote, could have been seen in an academic art setting despite their playfulness. In contrast, Les Amis, shot around the same time and with at least one, if not both, of the same models, clearly enacts a lesbian sexual encounter. The cover is a gray cardboard portfolio hand-lettered in black ink. The choice of the French term ami instead of the German Freundinnen suggests a reference to French gallant photographs. Again, the images are not numbered, leaving the sequence unknown. 
A portfolio of Les Amis in a private collection in California contains 11 photographs in addition to the portfolio case. It's possible that some versions of the portfolio included 12 photographs. A gelatin silver print with the same two models, clad in the same two clothes, was listed at auction in 2005. Within Les Amis, although the sequence is not certain, the different costumes suggest different moments in a sexual encounter. If we add the image listed at auction in 2005, then the sequence starts with both women fully dressed in coats and cloche hats, sitting on the divan and smoking. And I was particularly uh, struck by Libby's example of the um, woman smoking, the photograph from 1895. So women, new women are always smoking. Well, and deviant women, too. Um, the two overlap. The next image might be that in which the women are fully dressed, although lying in a tight embrace on the divan, as one woman uh, gradually pulls the skirt of the other woman up to reveal her thigh. As the models gradually undress, their clothing suggests masculine and feminine role-playing. One of the women wears knee-length breeches, a white-tailored shirt, and a tie, suggesting a masculine role in the scenario. Nevertheless, her high-heeled suede shoes make her fashionable and feminine, not actually cross-dressing. The second woman in this image wears a dark, gauzy, lace-trimmed negligee, much more sophisticated than the simple white slips in Arctum. The contrast between masculine and feminine styles continues in another print in which the femininely clothed woman swoons horizontally as the woman holds in breeches holds her in a commanding embrace. And I must admit, I looked at this yesterday and I realized there's more going on than merely a commanding embrace. Um, it's amazing how blowing them up will make you notice these things. <laughs> Returning to a more tame image. Uh, wearing menswear tailored jackets, ties, short hair, and smoking cigarettes had been signs of deviant women since the 1880s. Yet the signification shifted dramatically in the 1920s. In the 1887 edition of Psychopathia Sexualis, which is uh, the, one of the first major books on homosexuality, Richard von Kraft Ebbing stated that female homosexuals wear masculine haircuts and tailored clothing. By the 1920s, masculine clothing styles, such as white shirts, ties, and tailored jackets, could also be merely signs of the latest fashions. As Laura Doan has argued, in 1920s Britain, masculine dress for women signified the height of fashion rather than any coherent sexual identity. Similarly, Patrice Petro has analyzed the changing representations of masculine styles for women in the pages of the leading German fashion magazine, Die Dame. Yet Krull's choice to depict a model in breeches rather than a tailored skirt departs from representations of the new woman and suggests a more playful reference to theatrical cross-dressing or fancy dress. In 1924, new women and lesbian or third-sex women, and we can play with definitions later if anyone wants to ask me, uh, were still typically depicted wearing a skirt rather than trousers, which would indicate transvestism rather than same-sex identity. In October 1924, an issue of the Journal for Lesbian Readers Die Freunden, and unfortunately I don't have an image, but the uh, journal included an image of two women dancing together, both with short haircuts and wearing skirts with their tailored jackets and ties. As late as 1924, even within the pages of this journal for lesbians, masculine lesbians did not wear trousers. For the remaining eight photographs in Les Amis, the models are naked, 
except for their dart stockings and sometimes their shoes. I always wonder how you have sex with shoes on, but anyway. Uh, the depiction of stockings distances the images from the conventions of the ideal asexual nude based on classical models and emphasizes the contemporaneity and the sensuality of the models. In contrast to the conversational poses of the models and actor, most of the poses for Les Amis are tangles of intricately interlocking limbs in which sexual acts are posed but not entirely convincing. Some positions appear more sculptural than sexual. Now, this is an example of that. One image suggests cunnilingus, yet the head is placed slightly too far away. Another image enacts a 69 pose of double cunnilingus, yet again the heads are ever so slightly out of position, and the composition becomes a proto-surrealist study of a nude torso from behind with dark stockings at right and left. One more image um, presents a clear view of one woman's crotch as one leg flails above her. Throughout Les Amis, Krull repeatedly obscures the model's anatomy, oscillating between inviting the spectator's desiring gaze and frustrating the clarity such a gaze requires. As Abigail Solomon Godot observed about the so-called lesbian scenes staged for 19th century daguerreotypes, quote, women together are typically posed in ways that provide the viewer with maximum visual access to their bodies. Yet Krull's models fold their arms across their faces, tilt their heads so their page boy hairstyles hide their eyes, and press their bodies so close together that their breasts are hidden. Even more surprising, in not a single image does a model directly gaze out at the camera. The standard acknowledgement of the viewer of erotic material, the address to the third party outside the image, never takes place. These models fail to address the frustrated, desiring gaze, to symbolically invite the third party to join the sexual adventures taking place. The eroticism is contained between the two women with no imaginary space for a third, presumably male, viewer to enter. Psychoanalytic theories of the gaze have defined spectator positions in gendered terms, with the male positional gaze described as active and aligned with the desire to possess the female object, in contrast to the female passive position that would allow only the desire to become the object. As research into queer viewing positions has argued, these positions are not exclusively aligned with the sex of the viewer. A man can take on the desire to become the object in a homoerotic scene. I mean, basically anybody can desire to be or have any role at the end of the day. The compositional structure of Les Amis invites a desiring gaze that is narcissistic, a gaze that desires to be one of the women while rejecting the possibility of possessing them both. This argument extends Kim Sitchell's observation that Krull dismissed, quote, the male gaze of Weimar culture in favor of a female gaze, and her emphasis on the gazes within the images as the female models view each other. In Les Amis, there is no space for a third party. The only possibility is to become one of the women. Moreover, the acts depicted suggest a woman's knowledge of how women have sex with women rather than a man's imagined projection. The emphasis on the hands in each image suggests the role of the hands in female-female sex. In contrast, the absence of a dildo suggests that there is no need for a penis or indeed for the symbolic phallus. By photographing erotic scenes, Krull not, uh, not only constructed the desiring gaze, but also placed herself in the position of that gaze, taking on privileges previously permitted only to male photographers. The trope of the male artist desiring his female model 
of the creative act generated by the sexual act or sexual desire goes back to the tale of Pygmalion. Although there is evidence of women's involvement in manufacturing and distributing pornographic photographs, these women remained on the margins. For a professional photographer such as Krull to create erotic and even pornographic material required her to transgress middle-class respectability. Our, her motivation for creating Acta and Les Amis remains unclear. The later account of wanting to make gallant photographs is still the best explanation. Yet that decision was made within the context of her unorthodox and temporary, temporarily bisexual personal life. In her later biography, Krull mentioned various male lovers across the years, as well as one female lover, Elsa, with whom she had an affair at this time. Krull recalled, quote, I never loved a woman, but with Elsa, the joy of feeling together was great. We would have laughed if someone had described us as lesbians. Elsa was so profoundly mine that the physical issue did not count. It had very little importance. She had never experienced an orgasm, not with her husband, nor with her lover, and thus it had to be me to give her pleasure. End quote. Which is a really amazing combination of self-denial. Um, Krull's dismissal of the term lesbian, despite the clearly, clearly sexual aspect of the relationship, reflects the fluidity of female sexual identity in the 1920s. There's no evidence that he had, she had more than one same-sex affair. At the same time as she was making these photographs with explicit same-sex female imagery, the visibility of women who loved women was reaching a new point of public depiction and individual practice, and for that you'll have to read the essay. How, much, how many of these photographs did Krull print, and who might have seen them? A search of auction records over the last 20 years suggests that perhaps no more than five prints, if that many, of each image were created. The handmade quality of the portfolio covers suggests that Krull never editioned the work. Nevertheless, the reproduction of three photographs from Acta and Les Amis in The Erotic and Their Photographie in 1931-32 demonstrates that the portfolios did circulate at least within a small group of collectors and through them to this publication and a larger audience. The first volume of The Erotic in Their Photographie includes detailed scholarly articles on the history of erotic photography. Nevertheless, volumes two and three are heavily illustrated suggesting that the audience was less interested in scholarship than in the pictures, which not surprisingly depict single women nude or in various stages of undress. Both the second and third volumes include sections with lesbian themes, but the almost total absence of male homoerotic images is striking. And I must say, there really, there's only one image in 600-plus images that even is remotely a male homoerotic image. Three photographs by Krull were reproduced in De Erotic in their Photographie, two, uh, two from Acta and one from Les Amis, with titles reinserting these images into standard definitions of female-female sexuality. The third volume reproduces an image from Acta under the title Boarding School Friends <laughs> and lists the source as the archive of the Institute for Sexual Studies in Vienna. This title frames the image by locating it at a boarding school, a site often used as a fantasy locale, where lesbian attractions were seen as transitional moments of temporary homosexuality between young women inevitably destined for heterosexual adulthood. Another image from ACTA, um, and this one I'm showing you the original photograph, not the reproduction, um, 
In the third volume, this is reproduced under the title The Girlfriend's Confession, Photo Study by a Berlin Photographer. And they do use the masculine uh, photographer, not not photographing. Um, Here we are showing you, as I said, the original photograph. Reframing the the conversation as a confession places the image within the putative drama of female relationships. The erotic in their photography reproduced just one image from Les Amis. Again, I'm showing you the original, not the book reproduction. This is the scene with one woman fully dressed wearing breeches. In the book, the title is Absent-Minded, Snapshot of a Female Homosexual Character from a Portfolio. I love the absent-minded part of this. Um, The editor selected an image that emphasized masculine and feminine roles among homosexuals, yet is not explicitly sexual when you think about all the other images they could have chosen. The text of Diorotic in their photography only comments once at any length about the lesbian scenes. Quote, The frequent appearance of photos representing lesbian scenes surely cannot be explained by asserting that the circle of lesbian-inclined individuals is as excessively large as the number of photographs of this subject would lead one to surmise. The frequency of this motif can be explained more readily in that two girls from the circles of such models can be more easily persuaded to allow themselves to be photographed in, quote, harmless embraces, end quote, than with a male partner in an obscene position. And the buyer of pornographic photographs, even without being interested in the lesbian representation as such, finds in such a photograph the pleasure that two female nudes offer him. According to this assessment, lesbian scenes appealed to, appeal to male purchases of pornographic photographs merely because they depicted two women. Production of the images was also easier because female models were more willing to enact lesbian scenes, which were considered harmless, than to pose with a male model in an explicitly sexual scene. Germain Krull's creation of gallant photographs in Acta and Les Amis, depicting double female nudes and titillating and even explicitly depicted double female nudes in titillating and even explicitly sexual poses. Choosing to photograph female female scenes instead of female male scenes, Krull relied on the putative harmlessness of such poses and the willingness of her models, who were probably all friends, actually, not professional models, uh, to undertake these poses in a sense of play. Nevertheless, she structured the compositions and the poses in ways that frustrate a male gaze, denying the ability to enter the scene and allowing only the narcissistic ability to become one of the women to take on the female role. These photographs reframe the conventions of pornographic images for men, permitting the possibility of a desiring gaze that is specifically female, desiring women. Yet, as demonstrated by the reproduction of these photos in Diorotic in their photographie, such images could still be reincorporated into the dominant and predominantly male discourse of erotic images. Thank you. Thank you, Claire, for an interesting talk. Our next speaker is the co-editor of the book, Vanessa Rocco who is adjunct assistant professor in the history of art and design at Pratt Institute and, of course, co-editor of The New Woman International. Rocco has a Ph.D. in art history from the Graduate Center, City University of New York, 
where she specialized in Weimar-era photography, film, and exhibition culture. She organized many exhibitions and publications as assistant curator at the International Center of Photography, including Expanding Vision, Laszlo Moholy-Nagy uh, Experiments of the 1920s in 2004, and Louise Brooks and the New Woman in Weimar Cinema in 2007. Her reviews and articles about photography and exhibitions have also appeared in History of Photography, SF Camera Work, and After Image, among other publications. Her talk is titled, Bad Girls, The New Woman in Weimar Film Stills. What is the attraction and allure of film stills, and why do we never tire of gazing at them? They seduce through staged and incomplete yearnings, unfulfilled longings, and sometimes direct addresses that leave the narrative open-ended to the viewer. They also avail themselves to multi-layered personal references, even to a viewer who has not seen the relevant film. Yet as public artifacts that are distributed through press kits, theaters, and various print media, they also invite reflection upon the functions of pop culture. In this paper, I focus on interwar German cinema and examine how this intensely seductive phenomenon of film stills contributed to the creation of one of the Weimar era's most debated constructs, that of the new woman. In doing so, I investigate how the stills of three women of Weimar particularly Louise Brooks, but also Brigitte Helm and Marlena Dietrich, were circulated and received through mass media outlets, including box office programs, posters, lobby cards, magazines, and shop windows, the reach and influence of which had proliferated in interwar Germany and beyond. Although the films of this period have been well parsed, in historical and more recent critical literature. I argue that the visual influence of those films during their own time and through to the present day has also been based on the film stills that are lodged in the cultural subconscious, either as complements to the films or as substitutes for the films themselves. The goal is to bring forth an alternative view as to why films are so internationally and culturally influential in this case vis-a-vis -vis gender relations and sexual mobility. I should make it clear at this point that the film stills discussed in this essay were taken by anonymous still photographers on the set. With one exception, they are not frame enlargements taken directly from the celluloid. I will thus analyze film stills as a body of photography in their own right. A useful starting point for an analysis of how the many facets of the new woman were realized in Weimar film stills is the iconic black and white image of Brooks, one of the most magnetic screen presences in the history of cinema. An American emigre to Germany, Brooks's severe black bob, perfectly painted lips, and high fashion clothes embodied the flapper incarnation of the new woman. In particular, I will analyze stills from Brooks's famed film collaboration with German director G.W. Pabst, Pandora's Box, based on the plays of Franz Wedekind about the free-spirited Lulu. These stills take her through much of her character arc in the film. 
from showgirl mistress to wife to scandalous widow, although not in a reference to Linda's foreword, the victim of Lustmord, as those stills, interestingly, tended to be reproduced less as far as I've seen. <clears throat> this refers to the end of the film where she um, is murdered by a Jack the Ripper figure. The character of Lulu put Brooks's already extant New Women looks to great use, a fact that emerges strikingly in the stills. The lighting of the stills showed off the shiny black of the page boy haircut so associated with the androgynous New Woman look. The blacks and whites of the stills also served to emphasize the graphic makeup preferred by modern women as well as the way fashion was used to signify and differentiate between good girls and bad girls. The first image depicts the moment after the opening scenes of Pandora's box, when Brooks's Lulu has been introduced to us as the hard-drinking, flirtatious mistress of the publishing magnate Dr. Ludwig Schoen. We are now backstage at the show where she dances. Lulu is immersed in a moment of vengeful and jealous rage as Shun has brought his wealthy and refined fiancé to the show. On his visit to her dressing room, she instigates a seduction that she knows will be witnessed by the fiancé. Her chorus girl costume appears in the still as glinting with diaphanous layers and sequins and reads along with the furs hanging in the background as a grayish, somewhat in-between color appropriate for her current status as mistress, and in contrast to the colors she will later wear as wife and condemned widow. Once she succeeded in breaking up the planned marriage, Lulu herself becomes Shun's wife, completing an important step in the attainment of social mobility. A still taken from the wedding banquet sequence achieves multiple levels of character development. Lulu stares calmly at Shun as he seethes with rage over her licentious dancing with another woman. Played by Alice Roberts and often credited as the first on-screen lesbian, the character of Countess Geschwitz flits in and out of the movie, always coveting Lulu's attention. She is clearly resentful of the husband's intrusion on her moment, as her look and body language say unequivocally, go away. The still itself is a gorgeously rendered composition, with the glossy blacks of Geschwitz's evening gown complementing Lulu's shiny black helmet of hair, which then contrasts with the ironically virginal white satin of Brooks's wedding gown. This display of homosexual desire became a particularly popular still to reproduce, both at the time and in subsequent literature attempting to excavate Brooks from obscurity such as James Card's 1956 article, Out of Pandora's Box. Here we see how the still was utilized in the lavishly illustrated box office program under the imprint of the illustrator Film Courier, one of the most popular producers of such programs from 1919 to 44, sold at cinemas throughout Germany and Austria. In this page's composition, the wedding scene photograph, uh, bottom right, anchored a swirl of masculine images from Pandora's box, including Lulu's vaguely defined father pimp figure, Shigolk, who's this sort of crazy-looking guy on the, uh, the right and left above the wedding photo, as well as Brooks in male garb 
with her hair completely slicked back under a man's cap. That's on the left, overlapping with the wedding photo. From a scene in which she, she dresses as a sailor to escape enslavement on a gambling ship. Both here and with her page boy hairdo showing, Brooks personified the fashionable garçon type of new woman, a French term for the masculinized flapper spinoff that was a particularly polarizing subject of the Weimar gender debate. The garçon was also described in Germany as a boobykopf, the equivalent term for the page boy, and she wore loose tailored dresses or other more explicitly masculine attire. This look was thought to be related to such masculine social behaviors as sexual promiscuity, drinking liquor, and smoking cigarettes, as Claire alluded to. Brooks was actually nicknamed Bubikopf by at least two of the German film journals, which announced Pop's selection of her as Lulu in 1928. To see how troublesome garçons were considered at the time, one need only see the published discussion in a 1927 article in the mainstream Berlin newspaper Acht Uhr Abendblatt about three distinctive types of women, the Gretchen, the girl, and the garçon. And while I read this quote, I'm putting up a still reference still to uh, her other, Brooks's other collaboration with Pabst, Diary of a Lost Girl. This is actually a boarding school scene, something also alluded to by Claire, where Brooks is put in distinctly masculine garb, um, the uniform of the boarding school, while she commiserates with one of her fellow students uh, in her nightgown. Quote, the garçon type cannot be grasped by language. This is from the newspaper article in 27. Her combination of 50 to 50 percent sexual and intellectual potency often gives rise to conflict. The most significant one in this group, the business and life artist. Uniting a sporting, comradely, male entrepreneurial sense with heroic feminine devotion, this synthesis, if successful, often makes her so superior to the man she loves that she becomes troublesome, end quote. So what seems to be a celebratory description of the garçon and her ability to achieve a balance between elements of sexuality and entrepreneurship, of femininity and masculinity, ends with a kind of warning to be on the lookout for such a disturbing, quote-unquote, synthesis. The picture magazines of the time, which had exploded in popularity, were rife with critiques of the gender confusion spurred by new manifestations of cross-dressing and oscillation. This was typified by articles such as, now that's enough, against the masculinization of woman in the Berliner Illustrator Zeitung, 1925. Indeed, the best-known still from Pandora's box presents Lulu as a more threatening figure. She is the one now wearing black, as she has become the embodiment of scandal, accused of murdering Schoen on their wedding night as he erupted in jealousy over both Geschwitz's lesbian overtures and Lulu's suspiciously close relationship with Schoen's grown son, Alva. It also has the overtly sexual come-on that takes place in a direct gaze at the viewer, 
as she lifts her mourning veil and seems determined to ensnare us in it. This was also used as a still in the film itself, reproduced as a wanted poster, which leads to Lulu being recognized while on the lamb. This still of the scandalous Lulu continues to be used on posters at repertory screenings and serves as the cover of the recent DVD. Given that Brooks herself was such an idiosyncratic star product, that she really was a bad girl, perhaps it is this blurring between actor and life that partly accounts for the continued appeal of this particular still. After all, she abandoned life as a Hollywood starlet after a contract squabble with Paramount and exported herself to Germany to star in Pandora's Box and then Diary of a Lost Girl. Once she was back in New York, she staunchly refused to do retakes on her last Hollywood film, The Canary Murder Case. After returning to Hollywood in the 30s, Brooks was handed subpar roles and then no roles at all. She wound up back on the dance circuit and even in a stint as a little shop girl in her 40s before James Card, the founding film curator of the George Eastman House and other film scholars, saved her from obscurity. Bad girls were particularly threatening in the context of the Weimar Republic, and a measure of paranoia about the dizzying level of sexual and social female mobility portrayed by Brooks seeps into other films and stills from the period. It must be remembered that those stills allowed the content of the films to spill out into a kind of public street awareness, one albeit ephemeral with more stasis than the films, and one also available to those who had not seen the films. This public transaction took place through the use of stills on posters, lobby cards, and in magazines with larger circulations than the box office program discussed earlier. As an example, the pivotal moment of Fritz Lang's masterpiece of modernity, Metropolis, as Libby has shown, is the transformation of a socialist-leaning female activist played by Brigitte Helm into a sinister robot forged in a scientific lab. Large-scale metropolis posters of the robot transformation were even more ominous than their source film stills, with the body of the robot taking up the entire frame. Proof of how such threatening imagery might have been plastered on the streets of Berlin exists in another Lang film, Spies, which includes street scenes backdropped by large-scale one-sheet posters of the robot transformation. Now, this is the one frame enlargement that I am showing, but so that you can get a sense of how the posters were plastered on the streets. And then, of course, this is, you know, a very funny image of male anxiety as this actor runs screaming down the street under the, uh, the robot transformation. Joseph von Sternberg's Blue Angel, the film that made Marlena Dietrich a star, was another source for ambiguous stills of the Weimar New Woman. The still photographs made during this cabaret scene and others became one of the main sources of publicity images for Blue Angel for its German and American release, both in 1930. These were used for street posters, but were also displayed prominently on cards in the lobbies of movie houses and outside the movie houses again contributing to the street awareness of a more sexually outre woman, 
Consumed by the male gaze in the cabaret, yes, but also giving a command performance in her manly top hat and cuffs, and activated at least partly <clears throat> by the more submissive beer guzzlers behind her. Stills and shop windows also contributed to the spillover, as Carr demonstrated in his article by reproducing a 1929 shop window in Paris, jam-packed with at least 10 publicity stills of Brooks. So I apologize for the quality of this image. It's a scan taken from a microfiche article, but important, I think, to see how these stills were spilling out literally into the streets in the late 20s with the uh, Garçon Bubikoff image of Brooks. The final outlets for the stills that I want to examine were the most abundant in the interwar period, mass market magazines. The crucial connection needs to be made here between the illustrated press and the cinema because they were both subversive modes of address to the new woman particularly in imaging gender oscillation, or potentially subversive. Film stills were a key meeting point of the two, a dialectic that has not been fully addressed. Stills from the films, often devoid of the overfeminization that existed in even new womanesque cinema, indeed often the opposite, as in the case of the montage here, were some of the most effective weapons in creating these possibilities of oscillation and destabilized representation. They could do so, and did, through their variegated publication. Patrice Petro, in her groundbreaking work on building and theorizing a female spectator, Joyless Streets from 1989, made the crucial connection between the illustrated press and the cinema, and did so through the lens of the new woman. Quote, not surprisingly, illustrated magazines and films in Weimar returned to remarkably similar issues when addressing female audiences concerning sexuality, gender identification, and heterosexual relations. In bourgeois cinema and press, these issues were bound to economics and consumerism, to the need to address women's experiences and bind them to pleasurable forms of consumption, end quote. However, I would like to add to Petro's brilliant analysis as to how film stills were used for these purposes. Even in her closest correlation of films and magazines, Brooks as Lulu relaxing with a copy of Didama, Petro did not analyze the image in and of itself, but rather as a film referent, and the reproductions in her book appear to be frame enlargements. I'm showing a still. It is a scene in the film that is both shocking and humorous, as Lulu has just escaped from the trial where she is accused of killing her husband, yet she looks completely relaxed as she flips through pages of booby cop fashions. The film itself establishes her point of view as a female spectator by showing the viewer these pages. But stunning stills also exist of this scene that emphasize her complete absorption in her own pleasure and no one else's, an absorption that is clearly conveyed in the stills, even if one has not seen the film and the jarring break in the narrative. Indeed, many levels of intertextuality exist within this single still, since Didama was known as a publication that reproduced film and publicity stills. 
In addition to the box office program reproduced above, the circulation of stills naturally took place, most often through other types of movie magazines. It is fascinating to chart the international reach of the image of someone like Brooks in these magazines and to see how consistently she was portrayed from country to country, showing the resonance of the Bubikov image of the new woman at this time and how it achieved its international iconic status. In addition to movie fame in the United States and then Germany, within a one-year period from mid-1929 to mid-1930, she graced the front and back covers of movie magazines in European countries ranging from Sweden to Portugal, Italy, and France. The cover shots were most often highly feminized publicity stills, but inside were often found more gender-bending stills from her other films. In the June 1930 issue of Le Film, for example, she was the étoile du jour, star of the day, and the photos included film stills from Beggars of Life, in which she spent most of the movie cross-dressed as a male hobo. In the post-war era, there have been, until recently, I should add, there have been occasional but not sustained attempts to explore film stills as synthesizers of crucial information about Weimar cinema and, indeed, cinema in general. For my purposes here, the most relevant was the project undertaken by Cinematheque Francaise's founding director, Henri Langlois, which had the effect of resurrecting Brooks's and other women's careers after they had fallen into obscurity. From June to September 1955, Langlois mounted an exhibition at the Musée National d'Art Moderne, 60 Years of Cinema, which included various cinematic artifacts and stills, as well as an extensive screening program that sampled widely from Weimar cinema, including showings of Diary of a Lost Girl and Metropolis. According to Card's firsthand accounts, the, quote, vast and bravely unorthodox exhibition featured gigantic enlargements of rare movie stills towering ominously one above the other, end quote. In Card's view, the two most dominating were Brooks as Lulu and Maria Falconetti from The Passion of Joan of Arc, although he did not specify which stills they were. Langlois made a now famous statement at the time justifying his choice of those particular stills. Quote, there is no Garbo, there is no Dietrich, there is only Louise Brooks, end quote. Langlois also made a somewhat unsettling statement about her in the catalog. Quote, she has the naturalness that only primitives retain before the lens, end quote. Despite the very unfortunate wording, this reception might help explain how Brooks and other new women were perceived to have a visceral and almost unnerving appeal on the screen and stills at the time. They possessed an unusual sense of freedom on camera, a freedom that allowed, a, allowed conveyance of an omnisexuality that could be quite subversive. In conclusion, let us revisit the private uh, attraction and allure of film stills and why we never tire of them. They serve as general fetish objects, as readily available fantasies of sexual mobility and freedom that can either precede replace or extend the pleasures provided by a film experience. 
However, as public artifacts, they also invite reflection on popular culture and how street awareness functions. The New Woman of Weimar provides a particularly fertile case study for the private and public functions of these artifacts. Women were privately and pleasurably consuming sexually bold and ambiguous cinematic and magazine images as never before, including these interstitial stills existing in the space between film and print. Yet the omnipresence of film stills in public print culture also guaranteed their place, albeit an unacknowledged one, in a contentious and internationalized debate among women and men about the Bubikov. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa, for a wonderful talk. I have to admit that um, Louise Brooks always was a kind of physical role model. Uh, totally impossible for an overweight redhead with frizzy hair at the age of 16, but she always, perhaps because she was so unattainable, I always thought she looked um, absolutely, she was an ideal persona. Okay. Uh, our final speaker uh, is Christine Harris, who is Associate Professor of History and director of the Asian Studies Program at the State University of New York at New Paltz. She recently was a visiting associate professor in cinema and media studies at the University of Chicago. Her article on the 1935 Chinese film, The New Woman, an actress Wan Ling Yu, was published in Transnational Chinese Cinema in 1997. Her other research, exploring the social and political facets of film culture in China uh, from the 1890s to the present, um, have also appeared in Cinema and Urban Culture in Shanghai, 1922 to 1943, and in Chinese Films in Focus in 2008. She is going to speak to us uh, about modern, modern Mulans, reimagining the Mulan legend in Chinese film, 1920s to 1960s. Before we start, since we've been talking uh, so much about Weimar film and this era of uh, cinema in general, uh, I thought I would just say a quick um, word of uh, remembrance of the great film scholar Miriam Hansen, uh, who, bought, who passed away last month uh, too soon. Uh, she was a great inspiration to so many of us, and uh, we'll miss her. And I also want to thank uh, Vanessa and Libby for doing such a fantastic job with this book. Uh, they did a lot of painstaking work in the editing process, uh, but really brought out a lot of resonances that you can see from one essay to the, to the next. And, and I'm really excited to read uh, so many of the other pieces in here. I've just gotten a chance to dip into it. It's really exciting. Um, so uh, this talk is Modern Mulans. And uh, let's see. Before the new woman and before the uh, modern female militia, uh, the red detachment of women, uh, there was Hua Mulan. 
In China's tumultuous 20th century, the legendary woman warrior was reconfigured as a heroine for the new nation and even a model uh, for the liberated new woman. Revolutionaries and artists reimagining the nation and gender roles invoked Mulan in a wide range of media, including fiction, memoirs, spoken drama, and film, along with illustrated children's picture books, uh, cartoons, and cigarette advertising posters. The one in the center is the cigarette poster. (laughs) The legend remains compelling today in popular new films and TV series circulating in China, and, of course, in global reinterpretations like the animated Disney version that so many of us are familiar with. My essay in the book uh, explores some of the earliest filmic incarnations of of Mulan produced in China. In the 1920s, at least three Mulan films were made during the Nationalist Revolution and the New Culture Movement. And another two were made uh, in the 1930s and 1940s uh, during China's war with Japan. And there was also stage play produced as well at that time. And in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, following China's civil war, uh, another four films uh, were produced. In the full essay, I discuss key uh, Mulan films from each of these periods to show what these films meant in their time and how they helped sustain the appeal of Mulan Uh, how the legend uh, was transformed in the process to suit contemporary events, uh, changing gender codes, and a new medium of motion pictures. Like most iterations of the Mulan legend, the films drew on a short 6th century ballad about a young woman who dons a soldier's uniform and performs heroic military service on behalf of her ailing father. And after 12 years at the battlefront, she finally returns home, sheds her disguise, and resumes family life. The 20th century films, like their earlier sources and their textual counterparts, universally retained the classic Mulan themes of self-sacrifice, filial piety, martial skill, and loyal service. Structurally, they always ended with the heroine returning to her family, transforming back into the female role where she began, and sometimes even marrying. Logically, we might interpret these persistent themes and endings as conservative affirmations of familiar social conventions and as assertions of normative gender identities. Indeed, scholars reading contemporary Mulan stories, uh, there were many that were produced in the 20th century uh, in, in print, interpret this recurrent return to domesticity as a reassuring resolution for modern readers designed to fix the sense of anxiety and even comic disorder uh, caused by her temporary gender disguise. And there's an amazing article by Joseph Allen about this in the journal Positions. Still, in the Mulan films, at least, I would argue that there's a lot more going on. As in many early 20th century Chinese films, uh, traditional values are at once tested and maintained, subverted and fulfilled, exposed and endorsed. Even as filmmakers retold the legend in period costume, they embellished the original narrative to suit their own present-day circumstances, alluding to some of the most intense cultural and political cultural changes and political conflicts in early 20th century China. Often we find the cinematic modern Mulans shadowing the figures of the new woman and the modern girl that first became fashionable in 1920s and 1930s China through emergent mass media, 
including the Illustrated Periodical Press, color advertising, motion pictures, and radio broadcasting. And here I'd show you an image of one of the actresses, uh, Chen Yunshang, in uh, the 1939 version. Up in the center, uh, cast as Mulan. Uh, but as you can see, her, her, her sort of star image uh, was that of a, a mobile, outdoorsy, um, uh, active woman who drove cars and even liked to box. Uh, and this sort of influ inflected her other uh, screen roles as well. And here's another uh, shot. Uh, this is from a magazine called Liangyo in, in the same year that the film came out. Uh, and uh, shows her as a reader, as a, as a homeowner, and uh, elsewhere she, she's driving a car, and there are a few other features in that, in that uh, double-page spread. The new woman was celebrated for her aspirations to equality with men in, in education, employment, and political representation, while the modern girl appeared in Chinese modern media as a glamorous, urban, mobile, even westernized consumer. For both, self-determination and freedom to choose a marriage partner were often highlighted. The modern Mulan likewise embodied the qualities of the new woman and the modern girl. She was upright, strong, and took up professional responsibilities beyond the home, but she was also playful, romantic, adventurous, even concerned with fashion and grooming. These parallels were all the more noticeable because the modern Mulans were being played by female movie stars who themselves were new role models, indeed new figures, new social figures um, in the time, role models for modern girls. They were routinely pictured in popular magazines like these alongside the array of activities and products that were being marketed to this new social group. And just to give you another uh, example of, uh, this is a different actress, Chen Yan Yan, um, uh, mostly shots from the 1930s uh, with her car, you know, driving, horseback riding, uh, behind a, a, a film camera. And uh, in fact, uh, in the 1960s version of the Mulan film, she played Mulan's mother. Uh, so appropriate. Uh, in the essay, I show how films from the 1920s to the 1960s introduced fresh subplots and characters to reflect a more complex range of motivations and uh, emotions for Mulan, placing great, greater emphasis on her self-invented identity and her range of experiences at war, away from home. In each case, the filmmakers introduced new ideas about gender equality, romance, authority, politics, and even espionage that were not in the original tale. And so for an example, uh, in the 1928 film, Mulan Joins the Army, uh, which was made just after uh, a really a, a national revolution in China uh, that had occurred in 1927, uh, when many uh, young men and also young women uh, joined the National Revolutionary Army to march north uh, in uh, conquering a, a warlords at the time. Uh, this particular film uh, emphasized a lot of uh, Mulan's uh, participation in, uh, in warfare going north as well. And similarly, in 1939, uh, the film, uh, also titled uh, Hua Mulan, uh, which was made during China's uh, war with Japan and, uh, and fight against the Japanese invasion, 
the film devotes a lot of time to Mulan's patriotism, her vows to kill the enemy, and uh, even if that means risking her life in the process. And they even add a whole subplot about her infiltrating enemy lines by going into uh, another layer of disguise where she becomes uh, one of the barbarians. Uh, and uh, that was, in fact, quite a, a fact of life for people living in uh, cities like Shanghai at that time where espionage was, was uh was all about. Uh, and I'll actually show a clip from, from the film in, in a few minutes uh, where you can see that, that scene played out. In these ways, the new Mulans epitomize the broader cultural negotiations between tra tradition and modernity in post-imperial China, dramatizing the dilemmas faced by teenage girls aspiring to leave their homes to join the revolution or to become independent women in the city. In fact, the homecoming ending of all these Mulan versions, which might seem to constitute a kind of normative return to domesticity and familiar conventions, is just one part of the story. I think there's an interesting analogy here with Hollywood films made uh, many about independent women, many of them made during wartime as well, and many of them also ending with a kind of climb down on the part of the star. As Richard Dyer points out in his classic book, Stars, these climb-down resolutions are actually less memorable than the striking independence of the character and of the star, which still dominate uh, the core of the film and remain very memorable afterward. And I think in that light, if we look closely at the modern Mulan narratives, whether in print or in film, we find that they generally devoted much more attention to her life on the warfront than the original 6th century ballad did. In that early version... Uh, which is still memorized by school children today, I should add. Uh, the warfront is just described in about one-third of the poem at, at best, right? Most of it is about her time before she goes away and the time she spends after she returns. Uh, but in the films, uh, that balance was inverted. Uh, they vividly dedicated about 70 to 80 percent of the, time, the film time to Mulan's life away from home, uh, her initiative, her mobility, her patriotism, her loyalty, uh, even some love interests, as well as her talent and skill and quick wit and her equality with men. All of these qualities persist into the homecoming conclusions and uh, for moviegoers after they leave the cinema. Another key point I make in this essay, which you can read in more detail in the book, has to do with the Mulan story as a narrative of disguise and how this gets played out in the formal qualities of motion pictures. Since the central character of Mulan is a kind of performer, she's acting this role of a soldier, the role held special interest for actors, and her gender masquerade played especially well on the Peking Opera stage where all the actors were male lending another kind of layer of dramatic irony to the story that was always fun for uh, theatergoers. In fact, one of the earliest film, known filmed interpretations of Mulan was a short uh, filmed opera interpretation. Well, actually, one of the earliest films of Mulan was a short peaking opera segment filmed in 1924 featuring the renowned uh, perform male performer of female roles, Melan Fang. 
But if the Mulan tropes of disguise and performance always lent some dramatic irony to the staged opera versions, the rapid rise of actresses as a new social phenomenon in China after the 1910s, especially in the emergent medium of film, now activated a more acute and self-reflexive awareness of roles in play acting. The magnified photographic image of the performer and her amplified recorded voice introduced a new imperative of establishing or at least addressing the credibility of Mulan's disguise as a male soldier. Filmmakers of the 1920s and to the 1960s took on this formal challenge as a new opportunity to deploy a range of cinematic devices. The films put special emphasis on the protagonist's physical transformation and the reactions she elicits, uh, such as shock of recognition close-ups, zooms, special effects, and dialogue. And there's so many, I couldn't show you all the clips today, but I'll show you a little bit. And at times, the films even let the aura of the female star shine through her male disguise. This could have a comic effect at times, heightening the traumatic tension uh, and the danger of Mulan's exposure. At one point, she gets injured, and they keep telling her to take off her shirt, and she doesn't want to as a soldier. <laughs> she doesn't want to be found out. Uh, but it also capitalized on the actress's modern star image and lent the films a kind of sensory impact that exceeded the narrative and even countered the brief and often even perfunctory climb-down endings. So um, I'd like to show two clips now, and then make, I'll make some wrap-up remarks at the end. As in other Chinese motion pictures about modern female soldiers, including the famed uh, Red Detachment of Women that itself went through many iterations from the 1930s up through the 1970s, well, actually to the present, uh, these modern Mulan films suggested that women can have it all, a heroism, a love match, devotion to country and family, provided they dress, speak, and act as men. Actresses like Li Dan Dan in the 1920s, Chen Yun Shang in the 1930s, and Ivy Lingbo here uh, as Mulan in the 1960s, each transformed the figure of Mulan anew uh, through their star images and screen performances. And I talk about that in some detail in the longer piece in the book. Um, and what I think is especially interesting uh, is that the role of Mulan in turn transformed the lives and careers of these actresses. And I'll just give you one quick example. Uh, Lee Dan Dan, the one who played the, the first uh, uh, Mulan that I spoke about, um, or that I write about in the book. Shortly after making the 1928 film, she gave up movie acting and uh, crafted some distinct new identities. Uh, she became the wife of a diplomat. Uh, she traveled afar to Europe and America. And uh, in a kind of echo of the film, she named her own daughter Mulan. And she learned to fly airplanes in Switzerland. And during World War II, she got a commission from the nationalists to help support the Chinese war effort against Japan by performing air shows in North and South America, flying planes aptly named the Spirit of New China and Estrella China. In recent years, the figure of Mulan continues to reappear in film, on film in various, in various guises through to Disney animations, television serials, and additional feature films. 
Most recently, the enduring magnetic power of the Mulan legend for filmmakers was evident in the intense competition among top mainland and Hong Kong actresses for the lead role in a big-budget uh, live-action Mulan film released just as I was putting the final, final touches on this essay. Uh, so I'm writing a follow-up piece on that now. It actually fits in well. Uh, with the rising Vic, ma mainland star Vicky Jowei, who's sort of known for her action film roles and supernatural thrillers, uh, cast in the lead, another Hua Mulan has now emerged for a new era and a new China. Thank you.